Hey, uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Galatians chapter 3. And let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you, we praise you for the ways in which you have already met with us this morning in our singing, in our confession, in our praying, in the sacrament of baptism. There you were affirming your love for your people. And we pray, God, that as we open up, our word, open up your word and we talk together about the gospel once again, that you would open up hearts and minds, illuminate our understanding. I pray that your gospel would go deep into our hearts and would change us from the inside out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we've been in a series over the last few weeks called A New Name, and we've talked together about what it means to be a Christ-centered church. And so we said the first week, that means we have Christ as our end. He is our destination. Our home is conformity to Christ, to share in the glory of Christ. And then uh, the week after that, we looked at Christ our Lord. And we've said that all of life is all for Jesus. And so to follow Jesus means to live underneath the lordship of Jesus in every sphere and every aspect of life. And then we talked about Christ, our example. And we've said, look, to follow Jesus means to conform your way of life, your pattern of life, after the pattern that was set by Jesus. And then uh, last week, we talked about Christ, the final word. And we've said that, look, The fullest disclosure of God's true self is found for us in Jesus. And this morning, we're going to talk about a new aspect of being a Christ-centered church, and that means to have Christ as our Redeemer. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the cross of Jesus. So uh, a while back, I was listening to an interview with Oprah Winfrey, and at the end of this interview, she told this incredible story. She said that she was out walking her dogs one day near her home in Chicago, and she said, you know, she didn't have her lipstick on or her Oprah face on, and as she was out walking with her dog, she walked by this man who was sitting on the side of the road, and he was kind of shady looking, a little bit scary, and he looks up up at her and he says, hey, baby, hey, baby, how you doing? How you doing? And she just ignored him and tried to look, look ahead and keep walking. He said, hey, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? Can't talk to nobody? You too good to talk to no money? Come on, baby. Come on, baby. Tell me, what's your name? And she, she looked at him and she just said, I'm going to tell him. And she said, my name is Oprah Winfrey. And she, he looked at her and he said, oh, you wish, you wish you was Oprah. <laughs> You know, sometimes the truth is so surprising and so outside of our categories that we cannot help but meet it with unbelief and skepticism. And I can just imagine that as the first Christians went about announcing all around the Grecan world, Greco-Roman world, the news that it was through the crucified one, it was through the cross of Jesus Christ that God was enacting his great rescue plan to break the power of darkness, to defeat sin, and to make everything new, that that news could not help but be met with unbelief and skepticism. 
You see, in, in, the, in the Greco-Roman world, the cross was not a religious symbol. It was not, you know, a pretty thing you'd put around your neck or something you'd put on the steeple of religious buildings. No, the cross was an instrument of torture and public shaming and death. It was the slave's death. It was reserved for the dregs of society, and its intent was to inflict maximal humiliation upon all of those who were crucified. And it was not the kind of thing that you would talk about in polite company. And crosses literally littered the streets with criminals who were stripped of their humanity and pinned up like insects on a specimen board, dying slowly. And yet this, this event, this event of the crucifixion of Jesus that everyone in the Greco-Roman world so associated with shame had become for the Christians the very healing and reconciliation of the world. And this was news that was met by the original hearers with unbelief and suspicion. Paul would write in Corinthians that for the Greeks, it was madness, and for the Jews, it was a stumbling block. And even for Christians, it evoked questions, no doubt. Why on earth, how on earth, what was, all, what was the meaning of all of this? Do you realize that the, the, the first Christians, they were not expecting this. This is not how they expected the creator of all things to defeat evil and make all things new. They actually expected the creator to send a mighty warrior who would raise up an army and through a military victory would overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom of God for Israel who longed for her redemption. And yet that's not what happened. Instead of, of, of God sending a mighty warrior who would raise up an army and overthrow the Romans. Instead, God sends a mighty warrior, as it were, who would be crucified and mocked and put to shame by the Romans. And the early Christians wrestled with this. They said, what on earth was God doing on the cross? What's the meaning of the crucifixion? And throughout the New Testament, you find them drawing upon metaphors and analogies and language from the Old Testament to help make sense of this event. But of course, it's not just a question that was asked in the ancient world, you know, what's the crucifixion all about? This is a question that modern people ask. You know, I was, uh, I was talking to my, my, my daughter, uh, Eve, came in last night and she said, Daddy, uh, I'm writing a book called What Christians Believe. And this was the cover that she made for her book. And it struck me, without any instruction, without me giving her any encouragement, at the very, the very cover of her book, she had the crucifixion of Jesus. Because even at this young age, she understands that this stands at the heart of faith in the scriptures. Why? How? What's the meaning of this? You know, we had friends uh, visit us a while back. They visited the church, and they were, they were impressed by their time with, with the church, and they went home and they went looking for a church because they said, we like the inspirational talk, we like uplifting music, we like the idea of community, but they sought out a church that didn't have at its center, quote, from their lips, a bloody cross. Why does it stand at the center of our life as followers of Jesus? And why is it that this event is what has inspired so much art and architecture and creativity? Do you realize there's not an event that has been more sung about, that has inspired more music and, and art in the history of the world than uh, this, this, 
you know, this Jew who lived on the outskirts of the Roman Empire and his crucifixion, no other event has inspired so much. So why is it that this stands at the heart of Christianity? Well, one answer is the answer you learned in Sunday school. Because it was on the cross that Jesus did what? He died for our sins, right? But what does that mean? What do we mean when we claim that on the cross Jesus died for our sins? And it is to plumb the depths of that unfathomable mystery that I want to do with you this morning. And I want to do so by looking with you at this text, this passage in Galatians chapter 3. And this really gets to the heart of Christianity. You know, some of you have accepted Christianity. Do you know what you've accepted? Some of you have rejected Christianity. Do you know what you've rejected? This is the heart of it. It's right here in Galatians 3. But to get to it, we need to go on a little bit of a journey. Because Paul situates our understanding, his understanding, the Christian understanding of the cross, uh, he situates it right in between these big biblical themes of blessing and cursing. Listen to the text. I'm just going to read it to you and just listen for the language of blessing and cursing. He says in verse 8 of Galatians 3, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be what? Blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But then he contrasts blessing with curse, verse 10. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under a what? Curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law. Then look down at verse 13. He now talks about the cross of Christ. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing might come to the Gentiles so that we, we might receive the promise of Abraham by faith. And do you see what he's doing here? He's situating the work of Christ on the cross right in the context of these macro-biblical theological themes of blessing and cursing. And so here's what I want to do today, is I want us to explore these two words, blessing and cursing, and then I want us to see what Paul says about blessing and cursing and how they relate to the cross, and then we're going to stand back and have a little application. So we're going to have to go on a little journey, and then we'll get to application, like we do most weeks. Okay, so let's go on a little journey, and let's talk about these two words, blessing and cursing. First, let's talk about blessing. So blessing is one of those words, I think, that has lost its teeth in our culture. It's, it's a word that we use for almost everything. Someone sneezes, and we say, bless you. Or we ask, how are you doing? And we say, oh, I'm blessed. And I always think, like, could you unpack that a little bit for me? What do you mean by that? We use it to describe what we do before we eat. We bless the food. And of course, I always wonder what we're trying to do in that moment. You know, we take a hamburger and french fries, and we're kind of terrified to eat it, but we're like, God, just bless it. And then I can eat it. You know, do jujitsu on it, make it, some, make it into a smoothie, uh, a, a leafy green smoothie in my body. In the South... 
it can be used as a form of insult. Uh, my brother uh, is actually a pastor in Arkansas, and he said he, when he got there, he was always so impressed by people's Southern hospitality, and he said he constantly had these older ladies coming up, and they'd always respond to things he'd say by saying, oh, well, bless your little heart, you know, and, and he just thought, oh, yes, thank you so much, you know, and then about six months in, um, somebody said, Brent, they're not complimenting you. Bless your heart is an insult. It means, well, aren't you just the stupidest little thing I ever did see, you know, and... <laughs> I, 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 there's a saying that I, I like to say sometimes that about church life that I learned from my mom. She said, you know, some people are a blessing wherever they go, and then some people are a blessing when they go. And so you want to be the former, not the latter. But we use this blessing for almost everything. What do we mean by blessing? What does the biblical word blessing mean anyway? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, defined it like this. He said, blessing is the visible perceptible, effective proximity of God. Now, that's a good definition. I actually think it's profoundly biblical. I want to show you why, but it's a little bit dense, and so we need to unpack it a little bit. And I want you to note first that word effective. He says that a blessing is the effective proximity of God. And oftentimes, when we think of blessing, we think of it sort of a a well-wishing, you know, I wish you well, I bless you. But in the ancient world, the word of blessing was not simply a well-wishing. It was what uh, modern people refer to back then as performative speech. It was a, uh, uh, what uh, philosophers have called a elocutionary act. That's a good word. I just learned it this week, and I thought I'd impress you with it. <laughs> but an, elo- an elocutionary act is, a, is, is speech that does what it says. And it says by, or it does by saying. And so too, the blessing in the ancient mindset, you, when you bless somebody, it was effective. It happened. But here, Bonhoeffer says it's not just the effective, uh, it's, it's the effective proximity of God. Now let's think about this word proximity. What do we mean by that? Well, proximity is nearness. And we might further define it as the, the, the near warmth of God. It is his effective word of goodness over our lives. We might describe it as the smile of God. You know when somebody smiles over you and you just feel like, oh, yes. You know, maybe it's an employer or it's your father. Maybe it's still your father and you're 85 right now. Your father's 105 and you still smile. You're like, oh, he's pleased with me, you know? And it makes you come alive. Well, the blessing of God is the effective word of blessing. It it is his warmth. It is his nearness that causes us to flourish and come alive. The primal story of blessing is found in the creation account in Genesis 1. And this is where the blessing of God is first introduced to us. And so God speaks in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and then there was light. And then God speaks moons and stars and planets and the universe into existence and the sea and the land and the plants and the animals and the vegetation and the people and the fish and the birds 
And then after God speaks all things into being, God says, it is good. God is delighted in it. He's like, this is good stuff. And then after God creates, after God declares it's good, Genesis says he blesses creation. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply. To say that the blessing of God results in fertility and productivity. The blessing of God is God's will over our life, his smile that results in fertility. It, invol- it, it results in spiritual and physical, and material, and psychological, and relational, and everything, wholeness, and well-being. Anybody in the house needs some psychological, and spiritual, and relational wholeness and well-being? Like, this is the blessing of, 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 of God. And what I want you to note in, our, in, our, in the opening account of creation that we discover is that God wills blessing for his creation, God wills blessing for your life. He wills your spiritual, your psychological, your relational, your material, your everything, well-being, and wholeness. That is his original intent. It is human flourishing. It's us coming alive to the world and to each other and to God. This is God's original intent for us all. Isn't that beautiful? And yet, all is not well in the world. And after Genesis 1, we see that in Genesis 2, set over against this word blessing, another word is introduced into God's world, and it's the word curse. And curse is the antithesis. It's the counterpart to blessing. Now, when you hear the word curse, what comes to your mind? Well, it depends on what kind of, uh, you know, kind of world you've been a part of. If you're a Red Sox fan, you might think about the curse of the Bambino, right? Any Red Sox fans here? Yes, you're, you're not ashamed. Thank you, brother. We'll pray for you. <laughs> you were baptized today. You've got to leave that in the waters of baptism and come alive to the Dodgers. Yes. If, you, if you've read Harry Potter, you, you think about maybe a uh, you know, the killing curse or the, uh, you know, you think about these curses kind of that are found in there. If, if you're me and you grew up um, with your brother Brent, then what comes to your mind is when your brother Brent was in junior high and there was a girl that had a crush on him who apparently, according to the rumors at school, practiced Wicca. And uh, it was a case of unrequited love. And she warned my brother that if he did not uh, pursue her, she would curse him. And that summer, after eighth grade, after my brother, it was a case of unrequited love. He rejected her. Well, that summer, he had two surfing accidents. The first one, his surfboard hit him in the lip, and it cut off his lip. The second one, his surfboard came and hit him in the eye. It's a miracle my mom kept letting him surf. But, but we just imagine, you know, this young girl with a, a little, you know, doll of my brother sticking it into his lips and saying, see if you ever kiss another girl again, you know, and sticking it into his eye, see if you ever look at another girl again, you know. And, but what comes to your mind when you think about curse? What does the Bible mean when it speaks about curse? You know, the result of the fall, of humans fall into sin, is God curses the land so that it doesn't thrive and become fertile. Instead, it's futile 
and it withers. He curses the snake so that it moves on its belly. A little bit later, before the children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land, he threatens, or he promises, he says, look, if you obey, if you're faithful to the covenant, if you're faithful to this relationship we have together, it's going to go well with you. And he pronounces all of these blessings. But if they turn away, he pronounces curses. And what is he saying there? What does it mean for God to pronounce curses? That seems a little bit like odd and strange that God would engage in this kind of cursing thing. What is that? Well, curse, as we noted, is the antithesis. It's the counterpart to blessing. And what's an antithesis? Well, it's a person or thing that is the exact opposite of something else. And so, in other words, all that is positively said about blessing has its negative counterpart and force in a curse. And so, if the blessing of God is the smile of God that leads to life and wholeness and fertility and joy and fullness, the curse of God is his frown that leads to futility and disintegration that cuts off our life from the life-giving fullness that is God. Now, why is it that God would frown on humanity, though? Why is it that God would pronounce curses on us? And I realize that in the modern world, I mean, I think in the modern day and age, we love the idea of the blessing of God, right? Like, who doesn't, you know, MTV awards, you know, any kind of awards. People are like, God just bless me. You know, people are liking this idea of blessing. But in our culture, we revolt against the idea of God cursing, of God frowning on something that leads to futility. And yet, if you stop for five minutes and think about it, I don't think any of us in the room, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, would have any disagreement with this. God ought to frown upon that which is worth frowning on. God ought to frown on lies that deceive and on backbiting and sniping that destroys people's character. He ought to frown on sexual deviation that distorts humanity and and he ought to frown on rape and abuse and, and all kinds of violence in our world. God frowns on that. That's not his will for creation. What God smiles on is his good creation, but he frowns on the distortions in his created world. And this is the curse. And it must be dealt with. It must be broken. You know, I was uh, reading this week about the curse of the Bambino, you know, the Red Sox. And I was told that Red Sox fans actually tried on numerous occasions to break the power of the curse. And uh, so uh, on one occasion, uh, somebody hiked all the way to the top of Mount Everest and put a Red Sox cap up there. And then at base camp, they burned a Yankees hat. And then uh, on another occasion, they invited a Catholic priest to come and to perform an exorcism of Fenway Park. But what they, they just felt the power of this thing. We can't win a World Series. It had to be broken. And the power of the curse remains in the world as long as there is sin. As long as there is that present in the world that deserves the frown of God, the curse of God that is strong, that is powerful, that leads to disintegration and injury, that will remain in the world. God cannot bless, he cannot smile upon that 
which is destructive in his world. But that leads to attention. Because some of you might think, well, okay, well, why doesn't God just gather up all the bad people then and just get rid of them and then he can bless all the good people? Of course, what's the problem with that? Well, it's what uh, 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 in, 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 in Harry Potter, Sirius Black said to Harry Potter, he said, look, he said, look, Harry, Harry's all worried about whether or not, should, am I going to become a death eater? You know, who's like the bad people in the book versus the good people. And Sirius Black said, listen, the world isn't split up into good people and death eaters. We've all got both light and darkness inside of us. And of course, the author J.K. Rowling was taking a card from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's play deck. Uh, He said this, and this was a man who was a prisoner in Roman or in uh, Russian internment camps, exposed to all kinds of abuse and darkness and kind of the depths of depravity of humanity. And he said this, even he said this after all of this. He said, if only it were all so simple to just gather up the bad people, get away with them, and have the good people left. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And of course, the New Testament itself says that there is none righteous, no, not one. And look, if J.K. Rowling and Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the New Testament authors all agree on the same thing, it just has to be right. I'm just kidding. If the Bible says it has to be right, okay, don't write me emails. That's truly what I believe. But it is. Like the problem is that we're all under the curse because all of us have aspects of our life that merit the just and righteous frown of God. That God cannot be holy, he cannot be righteous, he cannot be just, and just smile upon all of the ways in which you are being self-centered and destructive and dehumanizing to yourself and to other people around you. And so there's this tension And there's this tension in God's own self, in God's own life. Because as I said, God wills your blessing. He longs for the fertility and the fullness and human flourishing and life and joy. He he longs for that for us. And yet he will not, he, he, he cannot smile upon all of this in our world that he frowns upon. He has to deal with the curse. He has to deal with the frown. And addressing that tension, Paul writes this. He says, how does God deal with his desire to bless when the world merits God's frown and curse? He answers it with the cross. Verse 13, he says, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Christ breaks the curse. He sets us free from the curse so that we can inherit the blessing of God. And how does Christ break the curse? Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And with these words, he, he plunges us down into that unfathomable mystery that is the cross. And in some way that transcends neat and logical and rationalistic explanation, God, the creator of all things, deals with his frown over creation, his curse in, the curse in creation that we merit because of our own brokenness by entering into our brokenness and by bearing in himself the curse, by becoming our substitute, by becoming our representative. He dies in our place and for our stead so that he might break what's due us so that we can have what's only due to him. Or as the prophet Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as Paul would later put it in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. Or as that great hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, bared my pardon with his blood, or sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Or as the great theologian Karl Barth put it, man's reconciliation with God takes place, how? Through God putting himself in man's place, and man's being put into God's place as a sheer act of grace. It is this inconceivable miracle that is our reconciliation. It is God himself and no other who takes the place of former sufferers and allows the bitterness of their suffering and their sin and their curse to be born in his own death on the cross so you don't have to experience it. And that is very, very good news. And this is what has inspired so much singing and so much art and so much music. This is what, th this good news that God steps in our place as a, as a broken, cursed, God-forsaken man on a cross so that we can step in his place and receive the great blessing of God, only the smile of God we can know now in our life because Christ has borne and brought an end to the frown. So if this is true, let me just draw out a couple quick implications. Number one, it means you are free from the burden of living underneath the frown and the curse of others. You know, some of you, you walk around with great shame and guilt because of the frown of your father or of your mother, and you never got away from it. Even to this day, you still can't get away from it. There is something stronger than the frown of your mom or dad. It is the smile of God. You know, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, 
he lived for, for decades underneath the frown of his father. His father was this, you know, this strong, you know, patriarchal leader who was always verbally abusing him and looking down on him. He could never measure up. And he took the, his view of God from his view of his father. And he lived underneath that for years until he met the smile of God in the face of the crucified one. And after living out of the smile of God, he would preach this word to his congregation. He would say, hey, look, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf, and his name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And where is the Son of God? He is under the smile of the Father. And this is what you share if you are a follower of Jesus. Some of you live under the burden of the the curses in your own head. You're always speaking this negative stuff to your own heart. Ugly, fat, worthless, failure, stupid. There is a stronger word. It is the blessing of God. And when the blessing, the smile of God in Christ Jesus goes down into your heart, you are set free from all of that emotional baggage and you can flourish underneath the smile of God. And so this means we can live underneath a more powerful word than the word of curse that we speak or that we've heard. We can live underneath the word of God's blessing in Christ Jesus But it doesn't just mean that we live underneath this good news, underneath this blessing. It means that we become a conduit of God's blessing into the lives of others. You know, way too often, what's on the mouth of people in the church is a curse for the world, a frown, a judgment. Oh, they're terrible out there. We watch the news and we see these stories and we hear about these people and we're always up in arms and feeling self-righteous and critical and, and all of this stuff and we frown upon neighbors and coworkers and sometimes children or parents or siblings. But what God does in us and for us, he wants to do through us. And if God has smiled over your life and pronounced blessing on you, he wants to make you a conduit of his blessing into the lives of all those around you. And this is what the original call of God to the people of God was. God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham's like, yes. Why? So that through you, all the peoples of the earth can be blessed. God wants us to be conduits of his life bringing a smile and flourishing to the people we engage with. Now, I'm not saying there are not moments for being against things, but we only move against something so that ultimately we can show that God is for us and not against us in Christ and that we can live underneath the blessing of God. This can go deep down, transform us, and move us out to be conduits of his blessing to everyone around us. And as we engage together in this new journey... May that be true of this community. May we be a community that become a fragrance to the world of this gospel of Christ, bringing life and joy to the people we interact with. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now.
And God, I confess to you that every sermon, every time we open up our mouths to talk about this unfathomable mystery of your love for us on display in the cross, that we always feel like we're Dixie cups trying to gather up the ocean. But I pray, God, that your spirit would be at work among us and bring this truth deep into our experience. And may your smile become more powerful to us than all of the frowns in our life. And for those in this place who know nothing of your smile, who know nothing of your blessing, I pray, oh God, that you would draw them to yourself, that they might experience life from you, that they would know this great gift in their life. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.